So a bit like, I guess, IKEA. <laughs> the Scandinavians are known for great design. I think that that's the way we're seeing the world going now. So you can send the work to the people, not bring the people to the work. So that's one of the that's one of the big themes in the book. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Whitby. I'm joined today by Bruce Morton. Bruce is the global head of strategy at Allegis, where he's worked for the last 11 years. In fact, Bruce is in his 40th year in the human capital industry. He's well known as a global workforce design and talent acquisition expert. He has designed, implemented, and managed some of the largest resourcing solutions across many different parts of the globe. And he's recognized as an HR thought leader of the year by HRO, both in EMEA and in the US. He's just published a book, Redesigning the Way Work Works. So you can check that out on Amazon. Bruce, welcome. Thanks for doing this. Hey, Mark. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. So you were referred by our mutual friend, Doug Bugie. How do you know Doug? Yeah. Doug and I go back far too many years, probably 25 years, I'm guessing. Um, we worked together when we were both at, uh, I was at Alexander Mann, and we set up a joint venture with Doug to build Humano International, uh, which is a recruitment franchise business. So he and I, uh, he was my boss. Um, and then through that, we became great friends. And then when we stopped working together, we actually uh, flat shared in London for a couple of years, which was, if ever you've seen any shows, The Odd Couple, That'll give you the picture. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> that's hilarious. You do seem like very different uh, characters. So um, well, that's interesting. Uh, Doug's such a great guy. He's been really generous yeah. uh, as an advocate and supporter of the podcast, referred some really you know top people, including you, to, uh, to the show. Um, so you originally worked for James Can then way back yeah. in the day. Yeah, when they were very, we were very small. I think we got 165 employees when I joined as a commercial director. Um, okay. You know, so I was there for all the days when Rosalind Blair, you know, pitched the idea of RPO. We're like scratching our heads. What's that? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And uh, then we actually overlapped briefly at Team P Worldwide. Right. Um, you were the business development director for Europe. I was a senior consultant at a company called Melville Craig, which mm. at the time was the largest independent recruitment agency in Scotland. Um, and it was acquired by TMP in 2001, which, and then later that became, that became Hudson. Uh, what was your job at TMP? What did that involve? Yeah. So I was employee number eight. Um, and then in the next 20 months, we bought 47 companies. Wow. Um, and my job as head of business <laughs> development for Europe was to work with those owner-managed companies that we'd bought to say, hey, let's all play nicely together. I'll go and win a big deal across all of Europe and you'll be the delivery vehicle. So I was, in some cases, I was like Father Christmas walking into the office. And in somewhere, <laughs> there was some cultural challenges. It was like, keep out yeah. of my kitchen. We're going to win our own business. Thank you. So um, really interesting times, but great fun. And we were one of the only companies that could do what we did at that time. So it made me look really good as a BD guy. Amazing. So speaking of like, I'd like to get into talking about your book, Redesigning the Way Work Works, which is a great title. Um, but first, like, what does your job at Allegis involve? Head, global head of strategy. What does that really mean? Yeah. And it's a great title. It's one of those that it's sort of, you know, changes by the day of the week. But when I, well, when we used to, when I used to fly every week, you'd meet somebody on a plane and they're chatting and I could literally say anything because it's such an umbrella term. But the reality is um, if you split it 50, 50, 50% of it is working with our more global strategic complex clients, help them see around the corner, help them see in the future, work with them on their all things uh, talent and all things workforce strategy. And then 50% internally, making sure that from a product development innovation perspective, we're building the solutions to deliver on the promise. Ah, interesting. So can you give me an example of like, on a, what does, yeah. how does that really? Yeah, so like, I guess a, a little tangible example of that would be um, back in 2018, we realized that organizations were starting to get frustrated with the VMS and the ATS world that they wouldn't do both. And you go to these conferences and they're all going, yeah, we're going to, you know, ATS, we're going to build a contingent capability. 
BMS, we're going to build a... And it just wasn't happening. So we took a view that, you know what, let's not wait any longer. Let's build and what we call an intelligent workforce platform that allows ATS, VMS to sit on so that we can give our clients a seamless experience, regardless of the type of talent they're trying to bring into the organization. What is that? What that's now morphed into is actually um, we built such a great product, we decided to sell it as standalone software. That's quantum mm-hmm. work that you can check out. So organizations buy that for themselves, and then we embed it into our solutions to give that seamless solution. And we look smart in hindsight because since then there have been so many point solutions in HR tech mm-hmm. that it's it's mind blowing and mind numbing in some instances. So we, you know, we say to our clients, look, don't worry about all that. We have that one integration point, typically with our HRIS for Perm or their P2P like an Ariba on the contingent side. All those other point solutions will plug into Quantum Work. So it becomes an integrator so that the, you know, it's the, the classic graceful swan above the surface with the legs going crazy underneath. The client doesn't need to worry about that because what was happening at the same time, every time you mentioned integration, HR procurement will be like, oh, that means I've got to go to the CIO and ask them for an integration. <laughs> it's going to cost me a ton of money and it's going to take 18 months. So we, we thought, let's just, let's just stop trying to integrate with all these different things for the client. Let's do that on their behalf and have just one, have one plugin. So that's an example of we saw that need, we saw the need of the market, sort of took a bit of a punt on where we thought the market was going and invested in that. But it's been a, it, it's a phenomenal success. Wow. That's amazing. So what's the sort of typical size of the project that you would get involved in delivering or designing? Uh, um, typically, so a large organization, large client, um, where we might be in 60 or 70 countries you know, to run all of their complete contingent labor or their perm workforce at the one end of the spectrum. At the other end, it might be hey, we need help rethinking the way we communicate our program internally, you know, some branding, advice, and design in that element. So it can be as small as that, get involved in that, all the way up to this is going to take 18 months to integrate a global solution, um, Mm -hmm. play a part in that. Mm, Okay, interesting. Um, So let's talk about this book. You wrote it back Mm -hmm. in 2019. Um, what, if anything, would you revise, you know, now that <laughs> yeah. we've lived through the last uh, 12 months or so? Yeah. So to set the context, um, it was a book that was, it was almost a present to myself, um, sounds self-serving, but hopefully for the industry. But it's my 40th year I was uh, in the industry. Um, and I thought, and I hit 60, and I'm like, worlds are colliding here. Uh, I've always wanted to write a book. I have pretty, I'm pretty opinionated about the industry, but let's just get it out there. And it's very much an opinion. You you can take it or leave it. I deliberately took the view of not putting, I didn't want to go down the traditional business book of, I'm going to tell you what we're going to tell you. We're going to have, here's some use cases. Here's some best practice. Now I've told you, I've told you. Um, This is more about, hey, this is Bruce Morton's view of the world, been in the industry for 40 years. Um, Where I, if I had time to, rewrite it or update it, um, I would love to be able to do that and just put a big stamp on the front post-COVID because some of the projections that I make in the book um, that I was saying five to 10 years actually happened within the first two months of COVID. So it sort of makes me feel smart. But as a guy that likes to think I'm a bit of a futurist innovator, I like to be over-optimistic. <laughs> it, makes me, it makes me seem a bit uh, not optimistic enough or not, you know, not pushing the envelope enough. So I I think I'd want to change some of that. Uh, Who knew what was coming? But I could not be more excited that the way I think organizations should think, they are now thinking that way because of what's happened the last 12 months. It's really, you know, like it says, it takes a good war for, you know, for innovation. Um, We've just, all of us have lived through the biggest social experiment of all time when it comes to work that, you know, we can work from home and we can trust people to do that. Working from home doesn't mean somebody's having a half day on a Friday going down the pub. You know, it actually means they're working from home. Um, and I've got to tell you, I, pre-COVID, I traveled 51 weeks a year. Wow. So, 
typically 4.20 in the morning, a car would pick me up on the Monday morning, take me to the airport, I'd go somewhere, I'd get back Friday night, literally 51 weeks of the year. My interesting story, my wife now, of it was our six-year anniversary last week, we've been together 10 years. For the Congratulations, first nine, by the way. Thank you. For the first nine years of that 10, we only saw each other at weekends. Oh, my. Wow. So when I started working at home, it's like, oh, are we going to be okay? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> are we two actually going to get on for this amount of time together? Fortunately, it works. But, but, but <laughs> the fact that I can do my job without leaving this seat um, is pretty incredible. And all of our, you know, we've got 15,000 employees around the world. And within three days, it was done. Um, and companies, as companies start to realize that, um, you know, that means that all of this, the ideas and thoughts and opinions in the book about redesigning the way work works, that was the key element to it is stop being limited by the four walls around you must have this experience, must be in this city, must have this, you know, all that, throw that out. Uh, most companies, you know, tend to use job descriptions that were written a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And some must have seven years experience. Why? I don't know. That's what it says in the job spec that somebody got five years. <laughs> right. You know, some of this new technology. You know, we can all laugh as recruiters when you see a job must have ten years experience of Hadoop. Um, Hadoop wasn't here a couple of years ago, so you know. But anyway, I'm rambling on a bit. But the no, so that's that, okay. The, the big thing would be, hey, sort of. A, I told you so, but in a nice way. Well, what are what are those kind of top two or three key themes that you were writing about in 2019, which yep. um, that have come true and have has it materialized in the way that you thought it would? Yeah. So let's say a coming true because that gives a bit of poetic license that so we're not yep. quite there yet, but coming true. So I okay. talk a lot in the book about the concept, what I call a work design architect, and it's a skill set or a job that we're starting to see now. We sometimes, companies call them workforce business partner. Some HR business partners are moving that way. So without being semantic about the name, the concept of the work design architect is an army of people that understand the business very, very well. So they're integrated into the organization. So they can have a conversation with a business head that says, hey, I need to get this piece of work done. Rather than saying, can you go find me five five of these contractors, hire me 10 of these? No, 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 no. Stop talking to me about the people. Tell me about the project. Let's deconstruct that project. Like the same way that a, if you think about it in the construction industry, a really good quantity surveyor, they'll look at that drawing, the blueprint of the house, and they'll be able to tell you, here's how many bricks you need, here's how much wiring, here's how many roof slates, glass, Here's how much labor. Here's the um, process, phase one, phase two, phase three. Here's how long it will take. That's what we need to bring to the workforce. Let's deconstruct that project and say, here's all the elements that you need. Here's the best way to get this bit done, the best way to get that bit done. And this is how long it will take. And this is how much it will cost. Be very, very predictive about that. Companies traditionally haven't thought about it that way. They get stuck in a, is this an employee or is it a contractor? And then sometimes should I outsource some of that? And what, what we've seen with the advent and the growth of places like Upwork and Fiverr is you can take pieces of that work, wrap it up, put a price label on it, throw it out there, and let people bid on it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as you think about that deconstruction, it's what elements of that do we want to keep in-house? Must be must be an employee. That's less and less, by the way. What are those mm-hmm. elements of this piece of work that we don't care who does it? I don't need even to know that person's name. They don't need to get into my firewall. They don't need to get into my building. They're going to do a piece of work for me that I'll pay them for. You know, it, so when I wrote the book, I sort of obviously at my own dog's dinner, I found a um, editor that helped me on Upwork. And then when it came to actually publishing the book, obviously I did it on Amazon, which is the best experience anybody can ever have. It's just phenomenal. But I needed the book design done, laid out. And I found a guy in Lithuania, cost me 300 bucks. The cheapest mm-hmm. idea that I'd done in the US was three and a half grand. Right. I don't know who that person is. I don't need to know who he is. Yeah. I just send in. I just sent him my word doc, and he worked his magic. 
So that, you know, as organizations stop being so precious about how they're getting work done, it's, it's op literally opening up the world of possibilities. So that can't, but you can't do that without that concept of work design architect that can sit across or sit on a Zoom call, I guess, these days with a, with a business manager and say, let's slow down, tell me about the project. So what we do, the journey that we're on as a is because we're so fortunate to work with the world's biggest and most beautiful clients around the world, is we're getting all that data. So we've done it before. We've, ah, we've seen something similar to this before. So if somebody's trying to do an IT integration of Concur into um, you know, some other platforms, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. based on the last 192 times we've seen this project, this was the best way of getting that done. But you only do that if you have that intelligence at your fingertips, all the external data. And it isn't just about finding, about getting it cheaper. We're now starting to see something else I'll talk about in the book of, countries, cities, counties are becoming known for expertise in a certain thing. You know, India used to just be, that's where you send your work because it's cheaper. And then they started sending it further, you know, now Manila call centers, etc. But if you think beyond that, you know, if you want a great app developer, Buenos Aires is one of the hottest cities in the world to do that right now. Hmm. If you're into cybersecurity, you put it in Egypt. If you're into voice recognition, you put it into Israel. So a bit like, I guess, Ikea, <laughs> the Scandinavians are known for great design. I think that that's the way we're seeing the world going now. So you can send the work to the people, not bring the people to the work. So that's one of the, that's one of the big themes in the book. So, and do you see that actually happening now, or this is something that, you know, is oh, yeah. coming? No, it's happening at a rapid pace. And I think what it's colliding with, which is going to be fascinating the next three to six months, is the return to work conversation that nobody wants mm. to have. Return to well, it's not yeah. say return to work, say return to the office. Yeah, um, you know, every day I'm sure you're the same as me. You get all these feeds on LinkedIn and Twitter, and the next yeah. survey comes out that everybody's going to leave if you ask them to come back, and others are like, no, we want to get back, and you know, navigating that is going to be incredible. But that's the one element of it is what do we say to our people. The other is, how does that actually impact now a long-term strategy of getting work done? Because we've got to get past that, that instant reaction we made 12 months ago. Mm -hmm. How do we get everybody online and how would we get, get everybody a laptop if they haven't got one, you know, to, okay, we're not going back to the old world. So how do we set ourselves up now to take advantage of this, see it as a strategic advantage, and to answer your question, the companies that we see starting on this journey, those my believe those are the winners for the future. Absolutely. Mm. So what is your opinion? What does that conversation, what should that conversation look like in terms of the returning to the office uh, piece? Um, I think the, the smart term I heard a couple of weeks ago was a bit like when we went from dress down Fridays, remember? <laughs> and in, in the US, you know, you quite a t-shirt and chinos and then that but that became a corporate hang on a minute i'm still wearing a uniform it's just a different one so then people like in the that as the recession started kicking in not this one the last one but, oh we better start smartening up again perhaps if we put a tie and jacket on that will keep the recession away so we're basically all of that but the term that we use as an organization is dress for your day okay so if you know you've got a business meeting and it's the financial services business you probably want to put a shirt and tie on right if it's a West Coast company, you're okay with a T-shirt, but dress for your day. So taking that concept to the workplace is locate for the day. Hmm. So it's a nice, simple way of saying, be smart, work together with your team. When does it make sense for you all to go in because you want to have a collaborative meeting? And when actually can be more productive side of home? So hmm. giving the individual the authority um, to make those decisions, treat them like grown-ups. And how does that play out in practice then, like where individuals are sort of just deciding on any given day, where does it make most sense for me to be located? Yeah, I don't think it's happened yet. I mean, I don't, you know, we've obviously, um, we haven't opened up yet in the US. We're just starting to open up. Um, but so I have no proof. I don't know is the answer. But okay. I think we are, we are seeing a lot of companies having those types of conversations. But if you're interested, when you see people like Shopify, so that's it, 100% remote. 
Yeah. And then you got organizations like Apple who've just spent billions of dollars on that beautiful spaceship office. <laughs> if I'm them, I want people to, hey, can you come and check it out, please? Because we've built of it, built all these beautiful things for you. But the other the other impact I think that it's really interesting to study over the next few months is where does employer brand go? Mm-hmm. Because ever since the you know so-called uh, um, leak from Google in Zurich, remember the Helter Skelter? No, I don't out. know about this. Oh, about 10, 12 years ago, that somebody put some pictures inside Google's head office in Zurich, and it was like they go to Helter Skelter. And it was like, oh, my God, Google are crazy. Their offices are like playgrounds. Now everybody wants to be Google-esque. Right? You go to any company that wants to be here. They got bright colors on the wall and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so it all became about what a fun place we are to be. Look, we've got a foosball yes. machine and we're going to give you free coffee. And even like an organization who I have massive respect for, themuse.com, that's where the cool kids promote their employer brand on that, on that site. But it's all about video of what it's like to work in the office. Right, of course. Now, if you try and attract people on your employer brand, but what a great place it is to work, Physically, well, that's very nice, but I'm not. I'm never going to come in. So, what else have you got? Mm. So, what are organizations? What's their employer brand going to be in the next three, three to six months? There's a big play, of course, on the whole CSR that we've been through. It's all about DE and I now, but it, yeah. it's you know it's got to be genuine cultural attraction, mm. and it might be about the kit that they send to your house and how easy they make it for you to work from home. You know, you're not mm. trying to get into a VPN every day and, you know, you get onto yeah. a clunky server. That might be very, very attractive for people. Um, and it might be that, hey, those companies that say you don't need to come in every day are more attractive to others, or it might be the other way around. So anyway, lots yeah, no, to look that, at. This is interesting. Like, what else do you think are the key elements that make up an employer brand, if not the physical, this is a fantastic place to work, We've got, you know, a pool table and, you know, free beverages and, you know, funky office or, or whatever you can bring your dog to work on a Tuesday or what, what have you. Yep. Um, yep. You've given a few examples there. How easy is it? Do we make it for people to work from home? Um, you know, how uh, sophisticated is our diversity and inclusion policy? Um maybe social corporate responsibility. What, what are the other key pieces that you're advising your clients they need to really look at in order to attract the top people? Yeah, the, the big one is to, when you're trying to attract people, it used to all be about the company name. So if we go back one generation, my father, I grew up in Birmingham um, in, in the middle. And so, you know, it was all the Leyland, Austin, Leyland, Rover. Now it's a car park or shopping mall or something. But, you know, when they used to make cars there, we lived in that community in a little village called Alfchurch, about eight miles from there. So everybody either worked for or part of that whole infrastructure for, you know, manufacturing cars. So when my parents, they'd go to a uh, somebody's house. We call it going to a dinner party now, right? But, you know, when you used to go to somebody's house, the women would get chatting and somebody would say to my mom, you know, what did, you, what did your husband do? And my mother would say, hey, he works down in the Austin. Oh, what does he do? Oh, I think he's in the paint shop or something like that. He's been there 20 years. <laughs> so people were known for the company first and then what they did. And sometimes people didn't even know what they did. You know? Now you meet somebody, fast forward one generation, and you say to somebody, what do you do? They'll tell you what they do. I'm an IT, ex, you know, IT app developer. IBM are enjoying my company right now. Doesn't right. mean that individual less loyal. It just means they're more loyal to the craft. Long-winded way of saying is for an employer brand, you've got to think about selling the project before the organisation. That used to be mm. just be for contractors. That is now becoming more and more for employees as well. Get them mm. excited about who they're going to work with, the project they're going to work on, and as for, from a retention perspective, the mm. more you can projectize your work the higher level of retention you'll get. People want to start a middle and an end where they can celebrate. Now, that's not possible for every job, of course, because there's some mundane, you know, it's the same every day. But even there, how can you get those folks on stretch assignments? You know, the mm. concept of building an internal gig economy. So when you think about gig work, you usually think about, as I mentioned, like going on Upwork. 
Mm-hmm. We're now seeing evidence and some of our clients are building that internally, saying, hey, we're just going to push out these projects. You want to get involved in it? Submit your profile and your resume and let's get you involved in that project as a stretch assignment. Mm-hmm. That's what people are going to get excited about. So, you know, that's what they're going to tell their buddies about. They don't understand about their judging day-to-day work, right? Right, right. That's cool. I've not heard this term stretch assignment. What, what does that involve? So basically saying, you know, you might be a uh, data analyst doing your data analyst every day, but now we have a need to create some messaging and branding around a new solution. We'd love an analytical brain on it. Do you want to get involved in it? They're like, put the hand up. Yeah, okay, great. It's going to take eight weeks. It's going to be three hours a week. You're going to do these calls. You're going to have your input. Do it, input, move on. And we've just hmm. internally at Legis, we've just built a, uh, we have a badging uh, system whereby, you know, you can earn badges by getting involved in these projects that look cool on your email address. And, you know, people like badges. So it's a oh, cool. recognition. So tool. it's gamif- yeah. gamifying it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So does the business allow these stretch assignments to be done during your normal working hours or yeah. do you, is this extra stuff you're doing no, it, like over varies and you know in mm-hmm. today's world i think most people work far too many hours we're all guilty of that so it's hard to say does it build in that 40 or not mm-hmm. um if you're taking on a stretch assignment you're certainly not giving anything up so you might be doing your 40 hours of work in 37 now to give you free to this yeah. <laughs> is the reality yeah. of it some, you know, some organizations do take it all the way and say, hey, 20% mm-hmm. of the stuff I want you working on is not your right. job and we're only going to expect you to work on your job 80%. You know, LinkedIn launched that a while ago for their, for their staff, right? And so 80% on your job, 20% on other stuff. Since you're listening to this podcast, it tells me that you're someone who's interested in personal growth and business improvement. That's something we have in common. I really enjoy listening to podcasts, reading, and listening to business books, watching TED Talks. But by far the most important investment I've made in my own development has been working with a coach. It started back in 1999, 2000, when I was working as a recruiter. I hired a coach and he helped me to double my billings in 90 days. It was, it sounds corny, but it was really a life-changing experience. Since then, I've worked with various coaches almost continuously over the years, and it's made a massive difference to my own personal and business success. In fact, that first experience of working with a coach was the catalyst for me ultimately deciding that much as I loved recruitment, my true purpose was to become a coach and enable others to achieve their full potential. Fast forward to today, and I work with recruitment business owners to help them escape the feast and famine roller coaster and create consistent, predictable billings. If you'd like to know more, you can apply for a free strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. Coming back to the book and the key themes, one of the things that we talked about um, before we started recording was the idea of talent anywhere and you know, the practicality of working remotely and what are the opportunities that creates and what are the um, risks? Could you elaborate on like your thoughts on on that trend, I guess? Yeah, it's for Talent Anywhere to be successful, it's not just about, oh, let's hire somebody in Birmingham instead of London because they might be slightly cheaper. Right, that that's, isn't what it, 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 what it should be about. Is we want to go and find the best person or the best people that have the best cultural fit for our organization. That is the number one criteria: culture mm-hmm. fit. They're our type of person. Now let's open that up. That we don't really matter. It doesn't really matter where they live. That gives you a much broader spectrum. But it's also about if you're going to truly buy into that talent anywhere concept. You've got to go beyond just going out to hire when you have that opening. You've got to build Mm -hmm. a direct relationship and a long-term relationship with that talent, even though they're not working for you. So it's about getting very, very deep. Thinking of it, the the thing I talk about in the book is the concept of a talent sumer, which is a word I coined many, many years ago, but you should treat talent like consumers. Organizations tend to 
the bad ones, let's at least, tend to treat people like applicants, candidates, then employees. Right. And then yeah. ex-employees because they've left. <laughs> yeah. Stop all that. Think about how does, if you, you know, if you've got a marketing department, how would they go about this? Well, first of mm-hmm. all, you've got to get somebody's attention. Mm-hmm. You've got to do something out there so people grab something attention. Turn that attention into attraction. You know, I'm attracted mm-hmm. to that brand. Turn them into a customer. Then mm-hmm. turn them into a loyal customer. Turn them into a brand ambassador. Apple mm-hmm. a genius at it. Yeah. And I, you know, when I, when we used to do, do conferences, one of my favorite questions for people in the, you know, few hundred people in the audience, who has an iPhone, put your hand up, keep your hand up if you've still got the empty box. 80% still have the box and they take <laughs> it out occasionally, just stroking. So it's a beautiful thing, right? That's because we <laughs> love the Apple brand. Now imagine that. So that's in marketing for consumers. Bringing that to the world of talent, what are you doing to get people's attention? How do you turn mm-hmm. that into attraction? How do you bring them inside your organization, regardless of whether that's a contract or a poem? How do you then give them phenomenal customer service mm. to make them a loyal worker and a brand ambassador for the organization? It's sort of marketing 101, and it makes all the sense in the world if you stop thinking about people like employees and candidates and think about them like consumers. You know, you would never treat one of your consumers this way. You would never get a consumer to fill out 15 pages on an application form to buy your product. All it would do is put them off. You know, we're all now used to, everything we do is so easy for us. <laughs> everything has become easy. Our whole life is in our phone. We don't, have to, we don't have to research anything anymore. So why make it so hard for, for people to really have that interaction with you? So that's the concept of talent humans. Bruce, I love this idea. I've never heard anyone describe it that way before. <laughs> and uh, it, it makes total sense when you, when you see it. Um, can I just zoom down from the strategic 10,000 foot view to the practical day to day? Like uh, my listeners are recruiters, recruitment business owners, and yep. this conversation around making the hiring process still effective um, and rigorous, but less time consuming, less drawn out, less hoops to jump through is a daily conversation with clients and trying to explain to them that they will lose talent because they're taking too long. And how do you guys do that at, uh, at Allegis? Because it's a a great point. And one of our, um, when we were designing quantum work, we were going through the whole, you know, epic use case journey mapping and all of that to design the thing. And one of our um, immovable, you know, uh, non-negotiable points was one click apply. So if somebody can't apply in one click, then you're making their life harder. So right. how can you get to that one click apply? And part of that is, you know, taking sometimes taking a candidate on a journey to give you more and more information each time you interact with them, but only taking a couple of pieces. Mm. So if you think about taking an application form and breaking it down into five subsets, Mm. each time when they, when they first find you and they join the talent community, they're giving you a couple of bits of info. You reach out to them, you start some sort of communication, you get another couple of of bits of information and you're doing that. So it's, it's slow dating somebody Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? rather than, you know, taking them out for a meal on the first date and expected to go home with them. Right? How, do right. we, how do we court them in that way and just make it yeah. much easier for the candidate so that it's not intrusive and they're quite happily, as they get to know you better and better, they're giving you more and more information. Yeah. How do you, you know, giving them the ability to make a one minute video interview very, very simply. Mm-hmm. People will do that, you know, and they, they're answering a couple of static questions. Now you know more about that individual. Mm-hmm. So how do you, again, if I'm a recruitment company, what I say to all our staffing firms, you know, you, you'll know we own, you know, tech and Aritech, two of the biggest staffing firms in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, in conversation now, I'm always saying, are you the agent or are you the coach? Mm-hmm. When you think about that worker in the contingent world, because these are working for us, it's slightly different to a firm, I guess. Mm-hmm. But does that individual think of you as their agent? Mm-hmm. In other words, you're representing them. Think about a soccer, a football agent. Mm-hmm. Or are you their coach? Are you advising mm-hmm. them on, hey, where do you want to be in five years' time? Let's make sure we find the right assignments to give you the right skill set. And here's the mm-hmm. training you should be doing on the side to get you to that point. 
So, you know, for your listeners, I think that, you know, uh, one thing I would say is, you know, next time they have a team meeting, just debate that. If mm. we asked our candidates, would they call us an agent or a coach or mm-hmm. neither? Mm. And which or one maybe of those a bit of both. Them? Could be. Yeah. But how are we adding, how are we adding value to them? Mm. Because I think what's been really interesting in the whole staffing industry mm-hmm. over the years, and Upwork, I think, almost subliminally have impacted this, mm-hmm. is it, we all know who pays the wages. It's the clients, right? It's the mm-hmm. client is the king, client is the master. But staffing companies have to act far more like a B2C company. Right. It's not, mm-hmm. you've got to sell to the client to get the business, right? Yeah. But sort of isn't the challenge today. Everybody's mm-hmm. got more jobs than they fill. Everybody has more jobs than they fill. So it's more about how do you turn your lens to how do we how do we make it easier for these mm-hmm. these workers? Because if you don't, you're going to lose them all to the online mm-hmm. platforms. Upwork make it so easy for somebody to promote themselves on there. The mm-hmm. feedback gets them higher and higher up the food chain. You know, it's self democratizing from that perspective, mm-hmm. and they get a, they they have a phenomenal experience. So how do you, as a staffing company, give that same experience? How do you make it easier for them to keep in touch with you, to let them know, let you know they're available? Mm-hmm. You know, is that a pain in the ass? Do they, are they actually, can they even go into a system and say, hey, just let you know, I'm going to be available the next month. You know, how yeah. easy do you make it? So those yeah. things, it's about taking that concept of the talent consumer into the recruitment industry and saying, hmm, mm, do we give our people a great consumer experience? Interesting. Do you think there'll be a point where companies are, because here's a scenario that's come up recently in my coaching group. One of it, one of my clients is based in Montreal and he recruits UX UI developers for, for fast growing tech companies. Yeah. And, um, but then during COVID, he was a bit like, listen, do these guys have to live in Montreal? You know, why couldn't they live? somewhere else. And then the question is, could they even live in the States or could they live in Europe? And, but then I guess there's complications in terms of tax, like where, you know, and how that all, how that all works. So it's, it becomes a little, in theory, it sounds brilliant. Like if nobody's in the office, then why does it really matter? Someone could be in South America or, or what have you. Yeah. I I think, I think the taxing, it's a factor but it shouldn't mm-hmm. be a limiting factor. It's a framework okay. that you've got to work within. People will use it as an excuse not to do it. They'll put it mm. in a too hard bucket. It's like right. the co-employment flag that everybody weighs in the US that drives me crazy. Oh, we have to have tenure limit because of co-employment. Tenure limit has no impact on co-employment. Zero. Ask any lawyer. Zero. It's just an excuse because you want a tenure limit. <laughs> Don't weigh the co-employment flag. Explain um, co-employment. So co-employment is where you would say, I'm treating this contractor like a employee, employee, mm-hmm. therefore I have to give them employer rights. Got it. Okay. In the UK, it'd be called something slightly different. Yeah. Right? Okay. Got, it, the, got it. Got it. Got but, it. But it's just a value that people put <laughs> up and this is mm-hmm. a similar one. Oh, well, if I send the work to another country, what does that mean for me? You're already doing that. Mm-hmm. Right, it's probably just a, one of your suppliers is probably sitting somewhere else, one of your manufacturing arms. So yes. it's just a case of saying, okay, let's get ourselves educated on that. Let's make it easy for the client, because if we're going to bring that solution to the client, we mm-hmm. need to have the answer. Not, <laughs> by the way, you can't be the client's problem. I yes. find it's, you know company in Montreal, which is one of my favorite cities in the world. By the way, I love that. I don't know where you've been, but it's a phenomenal city. Um, I can provide you some great talent. They're readily available in Friday, Nashville. And here's the way we would set that up from a tax mm. perspective. That, Brilliant. That so bringing the solution, consult. yeah. So, you know, but you're yeah. consulting with them now and you're not just a staffing company. Yeah, love it. What are the other implications of this remote working piece that companies, many companies still haven't kind of worked out? I think the... Um, and we're struggling. We're not strong. Well, yeah, let's say strong with this ourselves is the whole wellness concept to it. Um, yeah. You know, we're all trying to tell our people, take time out, take time off. You know, nobody mm-hmm. had that vacation last year. There's nowhere to go. Yes. And if you take time off and you're working from home, you know, your laptop is 
I hear you. Go. I've got the exact just, same. Just have yeah. a quick look and then, oh, here we go. Um, so we're very, very conscious of that. Um, and we, we are, you know, the leadership, we're trying to set an example. We are so busy. I mean, I, this isn't just an elitist thing. The whole industry has come back so strong. It is crazy yeah. how quickly the industry is coming back. So everybody is running around. Um, so it's hard to take that time out. And the days of uh, elongated. Mm. You know, it used to be, you know, people getting into the office, they, I don't know what the, it varies, but they probably get in there around 8.30, you grab a coffee, you have a bit of a chit chat, nine o'clock, you're ready to go. Yeah. Now, 7 a.m. call is the norm. Mm. Um, because everybody's so busy, you're trying to stretch it into, you know, you're finding that slot. And because yeah. technology means that we can see everybody's calendar, <laughs> you're gap filling, right? Yes. Um, so, so what do we do about uh, that? I don't know. I don't know what the answer mm. is, but I do think we're going to see some burnout. Um, mm. I'm hoping that, you know, when things do start opening up more, um, everybody goes away and sits on the beach for two weeks. Right? <laughs> that could cause its own challenges. Everybody's going right. to want to go in September. Everything will be gone. Um, but regardless of all of that, I think organizations have got to realize that um, we're never going to, there's nothing to go back to. We're not going back to what it was. Mm-hmm. I saw a great post yesterday on LinkedIn and I wish I could remember her name to give her a shout out, but I can't, but um, there was a, some news come out yesterday that in London, some of the banks in the city, they're being turned into housing because banks aren't going to use them anymore. Right. And this, co- this lady who commented said, finally, we've woken up to the fact that we've been living in a world where every day we leave our houses empty and go and fill office buildings, but at night we come home and leave the office buildings empty. We've right. got double the real estate that we need. Right. And I'm like, wow, that really hit home to me. That's like the definition mm-hmm. of madness. Right. 12 hours a day, this is, you, you stand there empty for 12 hours, empty, now you're empty. It's a bit like you think about, you know, um, people buying cars. I mean, that isn't going to happen in the future. Really? The, Why the, do you say well, that? The average utilization of an mm-hmm. automobile in the US of A is 4.7%. Huh. In terms of actual minutes spent driving or. Yes. Yeah. 95% of the time it's sitting on your driveway. Right. Can you imagine any business where you say, let's invest in this thing that people are going to use 4.5% of the time? <laughs> it's a crazy <laughs> business model. We've got to get over right. it. We've just got to walk out and get in the Uber or the Lyft. Right. Or get in yes. our driverless car that you order on your phone. That's going to happen. Yeah. And it'll be phenomenal for the world because we won't have all that wasted energy building these cars we don't use. Right. right. And it's the same with office space. Mm-hmm. Um, personal prediction, as we're on a podcast, it's, it's a, going to prediction. I think a lot of these office buildings are going to be vertical farms. Um, huh. We need vertical farms more than we need office space. Uh, and we've got, to, cool. we've got to do something with them. You know, they reckon that 20% of the hotels in Manhattan will never open again as hotels. Really? Okay. So, hmm, you know, interesting. Exciting times. You know, if you think positively about all this, it's very, very exciting. If you don't, it's scary, but I'm a positive guy. Yeah. Awesome. I, I am too. You uh, have talked about m- companies needing to measure outcomes, not input. Yeah. Um, and, so could you say a little more about that in, in terms of how we interact with our, con- um, yeah, you know, yeah, our consumers comes, stroke, you know, yeah. workers. Yeah. And it comes back to the projectize. Cause unless you projectize something, it's hard mm-hmm. to measure what the, you know, has, did it achieve what it's supposed to do? Yeah. And the challenge that a lot of managers have, um, is that traditionally you hire a team of people and you manage those people. In today's world, you need to manage the work before we manage the people. Hmm. Um, John Boudreau, good friend of mine, awesome, awesome guy at USC. He, he wrote the book "Lead the Work" many years ago. Hmm. He was well ahead of his time on that. Leaders need to lead work, not just the people. So, so we need that, that new skill set within our leadership and our managers and support to understand thinking about how do I get this piece of work done? Then let's measure that outcome. And if you're involved hmm. in that project, that's how you get measured. So it's not about when, what time did you start this morning or what time did you finish in the evening? It's yeah. I need, this is the, this is the piece of work I need for you to get to that outcome. Mm-hmm. Tell me how long it's going to take. And we'll have touch points along the way, but 
but I'm sort of not interested in how you get there. I'm interested in what, what the end result is. Mm-hmm. So there's big, one is the leader or manager's ability to think about work that way. Mm-hmm. The second is trust. Because mm-hmm. what organizations have had to learn the last year is trust. Do I trust that just because that person is inside across from me, are they actually at their desk? Mm-hmm. You hear these horror stories of organizations putting software into the laptops so they can see if they're doing keystrokes. I mean, right. how many times they go on Facebook a day? I don't care. Yeah, I don't care how often they're on Facebook. Remember when companies used to try and stop ban Facebook? They tried to ban LinkedIn at one point. Yeah. Um, it, that's, they're probably on there for a reason. They might be doing it because that's the way they get their 15-minute release during the day while they're eating right. a sandwich or something, you know? Um, right. So it's about... So it's about the design, how the work's designed, and then it's about the level of trust. That's how you get to outcome. Mm, Interesting. So tell me, what should I have asked you that I haven't asked you about, Bruce? Like what is uh, a key idea or topic that you're passionate about that we haven't had an opportunity to cover yet? Um, The thing I'm most passionate about is the opportunity divide. I think that it, it is horrendously staggering that, the better we get as with the utilization of technology, the smarter people get, the smarter we get as a human race, the opportunity divide is getting bigger and bigger. Um, if you think about, you know, Biden gave his speech last night, um, and, you know, one of the stats out of there that a CEO now, on average, owns 320 times an employee. Mm-hmm. Ten years ago, that was 10 times. Mm-hmm. or some that sort of figure it's, yes. that's not made exactly accurate but it's we're doing this yeah you know the the rich are getting richer and the poor are still staying there now you know so how do we as an industry and this is a shout out to all of your listeners as recruiters i think we have a we have a responsibility that comes along with this amazing opportunity which we have to impact people's lives and i don't say that lightly you know when i got into the industry 40 odd years ago I, I just thought it was a sales job. <laughs> You're banging the phones yeah. all day. and getting, But I've come to learn that we impact people's lives. The most important thing for the vast majority of human beings is to feel good about themselves. And part of feeling good about yourself is work. So it's fundamental yeah. to people's well-being. So we have that responsibility. We have the um, opportunity, but along with that comes the responsibility. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is how do we educate all of our clients to truly think about opportunity divide and truly give people an opportunity. And when we put a diverse slate forward and there are three diverse and one old white guy, stop hiring the old one old white guy. I can say that as an old white guy. (laughs) (laughs) Really buy in and follow through and walk the talk from a diversity perspective, but also the way you think about hiring. Our industry, unfortunately, as created technology that scans a resume or CV in a nanosecond and rejects people because it hasn't got a keyword on there. <laughs> if we keep perpetuating that, those people will never be able to get in. <laughs> so the only way organize, the only way I think we can take organizations on that journey is to get to them to hire on potential, not the past. Mm. So how do you yes. hire on potential? Then there has to be assessment. So I would love the next few years to be assessment organizations having their moment in the sun to truly be able to assess people on their potential, not just what it says on their CV or their resume. Otherwise people will never get an opportunity. Um, we have, you know, we've got a, we've got a number of companies in this space. One of them career circle where we're upskilling people. So we do a deal with Salesforce, for example, to take their uh, Salesforce administrator online learning we find these people that are underserved, underprivileged. We, we uh, subsidize the training for them. They do the course. Then we find them a job. There's, hmm. there's got to be more of that going on. Google certification now within six months. Amazon Web Services is doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Corporates are now finally getting in this game and saying, we want to change the talk track here. But those companies have got to be open to it. Now, as a recruiter, mm-hmm. unfortunately... They want the very best person with the most experience fit this little box. And that's what we're going to send. Otherwise, they don't hire them. Of course. So we can't just send resumes that don't fit because you're going to get kicked off that program because you, you, know, you don't get any hires. So how do we influence? And the, mm. So to my mind, that comes back to the credibility 
the example we talked about earlier, this Montreal, let's consult to our clients because that gets a better seat at the table, build that credibility that we can have those conversations. And once we're in the tent, now we can start influencing about, you know, you said you need 10 of these guys, developers that were, what about if we found you eight and we gave two people a chance? Mm. How good would that make you feel? Mm. That's a conversation we have to have. And as an industry, you know, that's, that's my soapbox that I'm on whenever I get an opportunity with the likes of SIA and so on. Love it. Bruce, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much uh, for spending the time and, you know, some really thought provoking uh, stuff here. Listen, if people want to reach out to you and find out more, obviously they can look up your book on Amazon, yep. Redesign the Way Work Works, and uh, they can look you up on LinkedIn, I suppose. So Bruce yep. Morton at yep. uh, Allegis. And then Twitter um, is Bruce Talent. Bruce Talent. Yep. Excellent. All right. Listen, where are you actually based these days? In Connecticut. Connecticut. Just okay. Out of Manhattan. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, I'm originally from Birmingham. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, you're a bit like me. You've got an interesting <laughs> accent, which I would yeah. not have said was a Birmingham accent. Right. Um, yeah. Is that just because you've people lived- in Birmingham say it's not, you know, you're not from Birmingham. Yes, I am. No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> is that how long have you lived in the States? 10 years. Okay. And I was in Australia before here. So I, people do tell me I've still got a bit of that Australian twang. Australian twang, twang yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. All right, Bruce, listen, thanks very much. And I'll, I'll look forward to speaking again sometime in the future. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening. Just before you go, let me ask you one question. Who in your network would make a great guest on the Resilient Recruiter podcast? I'm always on the lookout for interesting people to interview. Recruitment entrepreneurs who embody the ethos of the Resilient Recruiter. If you're a regular listener, you'll know the kind of person I'm looking for. Ordinary men and women who've achieved extraordinary things. Specifically, I'm looking for someone with a great story to tell, someone who's overcome adversity in pursuit of their goals, and who's open to sharing their own mistakes and learning experiences with our listeners. In the words of previous guests, John Coxon and Alex Elliott, I'm looking for someone with humble confidence. They could be a top producing solo or independent recruiter or the owner of a fast growing firm. Maybe that person is you. Or maybe it's someone you know. Send me your recommendations, mark at recruitmentcoach.com, or feel free to nominate yourself. And if you think you meet the criteria I've just outlined, I'd love to hear from you. Once again, it's mark at recruitmentcoach.com. Remember to hit subscribe, and I'll see you next time.